Hello, I am Gabriel Bronner, and this is the Big Compute Podcast. Today's topic is quantum computing. Over the last several years, there have been new developments in quantum computing. These computers are a departure from traditional architectures. The promise is that quantum computers may solve particular problems thousands of times faster than traditional computers. So we wonder, what are the problems that truly benefit from quantum computers? When do we see these great benefits coming true? What are we today? And what are the challenges that need to be overcome? To discuss quantum computing, our guest today is Steve Reinhardt. Steve has a long history in high-performance computing, including being a director at Cray. For the last four years, he has worked as director of software tools at D-Wave, a quantum computing company. Welcome, Steve, to the Big Compute Podcast. Hi, Gabriel. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I look forward to our conversation. It's a topic we're trying to figure out, how we learn about it. So, Steve, can we... Can we start from the beginning? Uh, can you tell us what is a quantum computer? Sure. So uh, kind of simply, or simplistically, uh, a quantum computer is a computer that exploits quantum effects. Um, and so one of these is superposition. Um, and so let me digress a moment. So uh, you know, cl- classical computers are built out of bits. Uh, bit standing for binary digit, meaning it's a zero or a one. Um, Quantum computers are built out of quantum bits or qubits, and they can also be zero uh, or one, but they can also be zero and one at the same time, which is a little weird to wrap your head around. That is a quantum effect known as superposition, meaning it can can be in more than one uh, state at the same time. Uh, And so quantum computers are ones that consciously exploit uh, quantum effects. So superposition is one, entanglement is another, quantum tunneling is a third. Um, They they consciously exploit these quantum effects uh, to give faster computing. Um, It's, uh, since I was with D-Wave for the last uh, four years or so, uh, I, I had never really realized, and I, my, my background was not hardware, so I wasn't an electrical engineer. Um, I hadn't realized that classical computers actually spend a lot of time and energy um, avoiding quantum effects. Uh, and so classical computer or quantum computers have the possibility of being able to be much more efficient, much faster by not having to avoid those quantum effects, but rather exploit those quantum effects. So interesting, what you're saying to us is in the traditional computers, what we have is machines that we have to represent a bit as a strict one or a zero. And to do that, because the underlying world isn't like that, we put a lot of effort to make a traditional computing and spend a lot of energy on it. Quantum computers take advantage of this molecular dynamics where bits aren't really zero or one, they could be zero or one at the same time. We take advantage of those to build a different kind of computer, is that fair? Yes, I might give a, a, a couple more sentences of, uh, of background here. The, there are two main architectures that uh, quantum computers are being built in. Um, the, the one that is, 
has the most um, academic or theoretical basis uh, is what's sometimes known as the gate model or circuit model uh, computers. And those are one approach and they, they are they are in many ways similar to the to the classical computers and that you can think about having a set of bits or qubits and, as kind of a very small memory uh, and applying operations to those kind of a, a sequence of operations to those. Uh, the, the difference is that the qubits, since they can be in superposition, um, you know, if you have five qubits, then you can have 32 different possible positions all in, um, in various probabilities. Uh, and, and those can persist throughout a calculation. And, and you're, you're, you're uh, manipulating those states with quantum gates instead of classical gates. Um, so that, that's one major architecture. Uh, the other major architecture is, is uh, known as quantum annealing. And for those of you who are familiar with simulated annealing, it, it, it's, it's exactly, almost exactly the same. Uh, it, you, you can think of uh, speci you, you, you specify an energy landscape, and then the annealer um, probabilistically finds uh, low energy states in that, in that landscape. Uh, so they're very, very different architectures. Each has strengths and weaknesses. The um, gate model requires much higher fidelity qubits, but has a degree of universality about it that the current uh, quantum annealing processors do not. Um, the quantum annealing processors don't require the super uh, high fidelity. And so their qubits, the, their number of qubits has scaled much higher. So they're at the D-Wave is at the 2000 qubit range where the classical or the uh, gate model are at the um, you know 50 to 70 qubit range. Uh, so just very different architectures, um, but you'll, you'll hear about, uh, you'll hear about both of those. So let me, let me recap a little bit. So your point is there's basically two styles of architectures. One is gate style, more like the traditional computers, and the other one is the quantum annealing one. In both cases, we're going to have a series of bits or qubits, like five, as you mentioned, that could be each bit in one or two states or two at the same time. So you're gonna have all possibilities, all combinations of these bits being in zero and one. And that's how you're gonna parallelize and you'll be able to solve the problems in a different way that you solve them in the traditional computer. In the case of annealing, you have a particular way of getting to a minimum or low energy state. Is that a fair understanding of what you just said? Yes. Okay, good. So I think we get the basics of what the quantum computer is and what it can do and how it can potentially uh, parallelize things by having these uh, uh, qubits, multiple states, and doing things in, in, in parallel. So one of the interesting things for us to be to understand is what are the types of problems that we can tackle with a quantum computer based on these unique capabilities? Right. And, and this, this is a place where, um, it, you know, almost immediately the, the fact that the quantum computers are very different just jumps out and kind of smacks us in the forehead. Um, uh, so in, in classical high-performance computing, uh, many, many um, uses, applications of those, of those systems are focused on uh, solving partial differential equations. And so 
floating point uh, operations, uh, you know, whether those are 32-bit or 64-bit are, um, are, are just what happens all day, every day. Um, and quantum computers I, I, are, are not going to address those problems, at least in a, in a straightforward way. Um, th those are just not a good match. Floating point is not a good match with, with quantum computers. Um, the types of problems where um, quantum computers will be useful uh, are uh, in combinatorial problems. And, and that could be combinatorial optimization. Um, and examples of that are you know, the, the, the classical computer science one is uh, the traveling salesperson. Uh, so that means that you have a salesperson, uh, they, need to they need to visit all of N um, cities. Uh, the cost to go from city to city is, you know, there's, there's a, a table of what those costs are. Uh, and you want to uh, visit all the cities often exactly once. Uh, and you want to do that with the minimum cost. Um, so that, that is a classic problem that, um, a classic combinatorial problem. And that is a type of problem that, that uh, quantum computers will tend to be good at. A, a, a similar one to that that, uh, to that, that I, I mention often is, is team picking. And, you know, it's, it's uh, the NBA playoffs started here just, what, Saturday. And if you think about the challenge that if you're the, the general manager of a team and you want to, so, so imagine it's the off season and you, and you want to, um, you want to pick the best players for your team. There's really a, an astonishing number of, of constraints that you want to satisfy. So if you think about a team, so right now the Golden State Warriors are, are widely viewed as the best team in the NBA. So if you think you're, you're a good team and you want to beat the Warriors, well, you know you have to have at least one, probably two, preferably three players who can guard Steph Curry, which, which is I mean, obviously that's not, you're not going to shut him down, but you'd like to be able to guard him. Uh, you need two or three players who can guard Clay Thompson. You need two or three players who can guard Kevin Durant. Um, and, and, and that's to beat the Warriors. But then you think, oh, well, but, you know, we might have to beat, uh, if we're in this, the Western Conference, we might have to beat Houston as well. And you think, well, they have Chris Paul. And Chris Paul is a very different kind of player than either Kevin Durant or Clay Thompson or Steph Curry. So if, if you want to win, you have to think, uh, I have to have a player or a few players who match up well against that particular player on a team I might encounter in the, in the playoffs. And so once you do that, and, and, and obviously, at the beginning of the season, you don't know exactly which teams you might meet in the playoffs. So th there's just a huge number of combinations there and, and, and picking your team the best. And, and obviously, there are, uh, you know, players that play well together and you have a salary cap and a million other things. Um, doing that effectively is, is, a, is a very hard problem. So putting aside the fact that here in California, we don't believe the Warriors are going to beat with your solution, I'm going to move <laughs> on. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the point you're making is that the couple problems you mentioned are problems of optimization. So in a traditional computer, um, solving these type of problems ends up being uh, of exponential nature, um, and you would need 
enormous compute power to solve it. So you end up taking some heuristic approaches to do optimizations. The point you're making is this type of optimization problems in a quantum computer, they almost like designed to solve this type of problems, find the minimum, find the maximum, et cetera. Is that what we're trying to say? Exactly. Yeah. No, this is good. And 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 there's another type uh, which is is similar to that, which is uh, called often called constraint satisfaction, and the and and that is kind of an end end of a continuum. So at one end you have optimization, at the other end you have con, uh, constraint satisfaction, and then there are points in the middle that are um, constrained optimization, where you, where you need to do both. But the the uh, at the at the one extreme the Constraint satisfaction is, is a problem. Just says, find me an answer that that, um, that works. And and the um, the the classic problem there is um, integer factorization, which is uh, what is used for uh, decryption. Uh, this is uh, no, Peter Shore uh, is came up with the algorithm that runs on a quantum a gate model quantum computer. Um, that it, when we have a quantum computer that has enough qubits and works effectively, uh, it will be able to break RSA encryption, and that'll be a huge issue because that's how we all, uh, you know, when we say HTTPS and we encrypt our stuff, we do it with RSA usually. Um, so that is another type of problem. Uh, in that particular case, um, you know, in integer factorization, there is only a single answer a single unique answer. So you're not saying uh, find me the best answer that does this. You're saying find me an answer, or in this case, the answer that that satisfies all these constraints. So there there are a number of those uh, problems as well. Okay. So today, uh, public key encryption is basically based on the fact that you multiply two large numbers you generate the keys, but by throwing away the original numbers is is almost impossible to go back to these two numbers. What you're telling us is with quantum computing, in principle, you'd be able to get the two factors that got to the number, which makes the whole premise of public key encryption crumble today, which is how everything is built today. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So I think you paint in a future where you know, at some point, we might be able to um, solve all these very complex optimization problems and break codes. Is that the, the is that the future? I mean, when the when the vision of um, quantum computing is realized and we have quantum computers like people imagine them, are we be will we be able to solve these kind of problems? Um, I I I believe so. Um... I mean, obviously, we're in the very early days, so there are a lot of things that could go wrong or that could uh, delay this, you know, by by large times. But um, it 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 certainly appears uh, completely plausible and feasible. Um, I, I guess I would I would mention a, a a couple things. Number one is that I, I believe, and and I hear this. It's not just me. Lots of other people in in quantum computing believe that. Um, for quite some time, decades at least, uh, quantum computers will be used in a hybrid mode with classical computers. Um, so th- the reality is that classical computers are 
extremely general purpose. And we use them for many, 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 many things. And uh, they're cheap. They're, you know, we have them in our, in our watches and our phones and you know, the, the, you know, our automobiles. They're, they're very robust. They can be in a variety of, of situations. Um, and so they're, they're, they're ridiculously general purpose. And a, a, a reality that quantum computers will exploit in the near term is the fact that they don't have to do very many things well. That if, if there are important modules um, that they can accelerate, that, that a quantum computer can accelerate, they can focus just on that module and, and make it much, much, much faster. Uh, and and that will be a valuable thing. And it will be used in, in conjunction with a classical computer. So obviously there's a coordination need there. Um, but I, everyone I talk to in quantum computing expects this to be the case for quite some time, that, that they will be used in a hybrid mode. Um, and so the, as an application developer, you're thinking about, okay, when might I use a quantum computer in, in, in the real world? Um, you, you don't have to think about um, solving your entire problem on a quantum computer. You just need to think about, well, where am I really spending my time? And, and, and maybe also if, if, I, if I wanted my problem or my, my application to be a thousand times more effective or a million times more effective, where would I spend more compute time and look at the modules that where that time goes and find modules that are well suited to, to quantum computers. And uh, those particular models modules, I, I would say when, when, you know, when this vision, the, the vision of quantum computing is fully realized, those modules will be just unimaginably faster, you know, billions or trillions of times faster. Um, th that's, that's not happening this week or this month or even this decade. Um, but, but when, when the, the quantum computing vision is fully realized that that will be the case. Yeah. So you saying that we still have uh, normal CPU architectures to do many of the tasks. Um, is it, that may be the case that we face today, right? We have CPUs to run many things, but we may run, some applications or codes on GPUs or FPGAs. Should we view quantum computing as one more alternative? Yes, I, I think I think that is uh, in in many ways a a, a powerful um, mental model for how to uh, adopt quantum computers into a real world workflow. Very good. Steve, can you tell us, you know, this, we talked about the vision of quantum computing and what will be possible. Uh, I wonder if you can share with us, where are we today and uh, what kind of results are we seeing today? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's, um, it, it's, it's kind of ridiculously early. I mean, uh, so uh, we, we, we often kind of compare it to, okay, think about classical computers. Uh, you know, the, the, the first systems... Uh, came into into use in maybe the 40s and then into the 50s. There were, you know, a lot of very early work. And it seems like we're somewhere in the 50s. 
the 1950s to be to be precise. Um, you know, so we don't really have a Fortran yet. Um, you know, if if we if we look at our history books, you know, the the size of a byte was not really standardized uh, until what maybe the middle of the 60s or something like that. So there there there's lots of um, lots of similarities to that stage. Um, there, there's a lot of possibility. There's a lot of um, experimentation, uh, and, and obviously the fact that our um, classical computers are so powerful and we have learned so much about how to develop effective interfaces and you know compu uh, computer human interactions and, and things like that um, you know we, we expect that uh, this development will happen much faster but we are really way back there um, in the very early days are there any promising results that we see in with the um, computers that are available today with the quantum computers that are available? Yes. Uh, so I, I was uh, recently at D-Wave and, you know, what we saw there was for uh, problems that were structured in a friendly way, friendly to the, the, the topology of the D-Wave processor, uh, you know, we were, we were able to show results that were sometimes as much as a thousand times better than, than the best classical alternative. Um, that was for friendly structured problems. Uh, for real world problems, uh, you know, we were at rough parity. Um, and and, and the, the improvement we got from each generation of, of quantum computer was, was drastic. So uh, there, were, there were a lot of very promising results. There are also some recent results in uh, quantum simulation that were able to uh, replicate some of the predictions of Kostelitz-Thulis' uh, uh, um, work of a couple decades ago that, that won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2016. So, so there's some very promising results there. Uh, there have also been a, a lot of experiments with the gate model systems. They are smaller and uh, not as far along in terms of solving real-world problems. Um, but people are addressing the kernels of, of, of real-world problems today. Okay. So what do you think are the challenges we face today to advance towards the full vision of quantum computing? So the, the, the thing I'll mention first is, is not a technical problem, but, but a uh, kind of an experimentation problem. So, you know, I, I spent uh, up until four years ago, uh, in, in the classical HPC world. And when we made innovations in that world, they were, f you know, they felt like big innovations at the time, but we were almost always able to use major pieces of prior technology and, and, and change, you know, if, if there are 10 you know, major subsystems that go into a, a, a supercomputer, we would change two or three of those maybe in a generation. And so you, there was a smaller degree of change and, and you could hold a bunch of things constant. And we had a lot of experience about how changing different parts of the system uh, you know, uh, played out, you know, what, what things need to be in balance uh, et cetera. Like, you know, you think about, oh, well, the, the, the uh, computation rate and the memory bandwidth, they're, they're 
they're often closely linked for uh, many HPC calculations. So you want to be aware of the, the, the proportion between those two things. And with quantum computers, the fact that we don't have the first problems delivering differentiated performance means, that, and, and there are many, many, many plausible dimensions to improve, um, means it is really hard to know which of those dimensions should we improve next and, and, and which, which of those will get us to um, you know, differentiated performance for the quantum computer. Um, what, what this means is, to, to my way of thinking, is that we have to work very effectively, we as quantum computing system developers, we have to work very effectively with our early users and customers um, because we want to evolve our systems very quickly because there are so many dimensions that we could uh, decide to change. Um, but we need to do that very quickly and we need to make good choices. And that's not easy to do. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a challenge in kind of a um, high level project direction, um, you know, technology development uh, dimension. Um, coming to the systems themselves, um, for gate model systems, uh, error correction is a, is a major uh, challenge. Um, so the, one of the things that is a reality for the gate model system is that um, the, the, it, it's, a, it's a digital system, it depends on digital correctness. And, uh, but qubits have a degree of, of errors in them. So how do you cope with that? Well, the, the, the best thinking on that is there would be error correcting codes that are error correcting schemes um, that would use a collection of physical qubits to represent a, an error corrected, call it a logical or virtual qubit. Um, and the best thinking is that it, it takes on the order of 100 to 1,000 physical qubits to create a single error corrected qubit. Um, those error correction schemes are, uh, there's been a lot of theoretical work and some uh, work in practice, um, but the, 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 the gate model systems have on the order of 50 qubits, physical qubits today. So if you say, oh, well, you need, you need 100 to make a single error corrected qubit, well, that means you used all of your physical qubits to create a single error corrected qubit and you don't really have the capability to do um, multi-qubit interactions with error corrected qubits. Um, so this is a major issue. Uh, how do we deal with error correction? How do we make that work effectively in practice? Um, I, I should mention that the Microsoft uh, approach is, is uh, based, or, based on uh, Majorana uh, anions and it avoids this issue. It, 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 it's uh, topological is, is the buzzword underneath that. Um, but those uh, particles are, are less well understood and, and so that there's, there are other issues with uh, bringing a, a system based on that approach to, to market as well. Another challenge that I think uh, both gate model and quantum annealing systems will face is uh, I think for the foreseeable future, 
uh, real world problems will be bigger than the chips that we have. So how do you take a real world problem and shrink it or decompose it or somehow transform it so that you can make progress using the chip that you have today? Um, and you know, in, in the in the quantum annealing world, with at D-Wave, we made some progress in that dimension. We certainly didn't have the answer or or a great answer, uh, but we definitely made some progress on that. Um, how that plays out is is a critical factor in, in my view. Um, I guess maybe the last challenge I would mention is so subject matter experts, uh, what I call SMEs, and and by this I mean the biologist or the, um, the, the chemist or the uh, person who needs to schedule at, at, a, at a logistics company. Um, they, they have problems that they want to solve and they are not quantum computing experts. And so how do they take a problem that that a real world problem that they care about, they're, they're willing to pay money to solve effectively. How do they take that problem and map it onto a particular quantum computer, whether that's today or two years from now or six years from now? Um, I think there's a lot of software that's gonna happen uh, that needs to be in place to do that mapping efficiently and make this available to, make quantum computers available to people who are not quantum physicists or, you know, really deeply uh, marinated in, in quantum computing. That sounds good. By the way, I was uh, preparing for this. I was listening to one of your presentations where you said you, you like to work with uh, wacky hardware and make it usable for people. And maybe this is the fourth point you mentioned, and that's where you have an opportunity to enable this to happen. So that'd be very good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I was going to ask you one more thing. As, as these, these systems are so unique, so expensive, so hard to find, um, I wonder what are your thoughts on cloud technology to enable uh, multiple people to access. I'm thinking, let's say I'm running in my normal computer, but here I have a particular problem that I could run on a quantum computer. It's going to be an expensive thing for me to buy. What are your thoughts on, on cloud technology to enable access? Yeah, I, so um, I think it is, um, I guess I would use the word mandatory um, for to get broad access and to, to let people do, you know, as many people as possible do de development. Um, my, my, one of my D-Wave colleagues uses to, always uses the term, uh, we need more smart people using these systems. And I think that's exactly right. So the way to get the most smart people is to have cloud access. Um, so, but there's a, 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 a but, or maybe I should say an and with that. Um, remember that I, I mentioned that we expect quantum computers to be used in a hybrid mode with classical computers for the foreseeable future. And what that, I, in my experience, what that has meant is that the, 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 the classical processor finds a sub-problem that, that it asks the quantum computer to solve, or maybe a set of sub-problems. And then 
that it ships those to the quantum computer. And then as those results come back, it calculates the next things that the, on the classical side, it calculates the next things for the, for the quantum computer to do. So there's a, a back and forth. And you don't have to think about that very long before you realize that the latency of that connection is, um, is a first order issue. And so, you know, as, as with GPUs, we found that, well, those, those GPUs need to be very close, very low latency uh, access to the CPUs that they are accelerating. Uh, I, I believe we're going to see the, the, the same thing happen with uh, quantum computers used to solve real world problems. And so what I see is it's, it's likely we're going to need um, the ability to co-locate. Uh, so when I say I have a problem to solve and I have a classical part, portion and a quantum portion, well, one way to solve that is to say I'm going to send the classical portions, you know, like in a container, and I'm going to send it over so that it executes physically very close to the, the quantum processor. Uh, I, I think that's going to be a common thing. And scheduling is going to be an issue too, because you know when when we think about scheduling a, uh, a a web server, well, we have a million of those, and and we just you know you don't even think about it really. Uh, but if if you have this tight interaction between the classical and the and the quantum, then you really want to know that when when the classical sends its uh, function off to the quantum, that the quantum is going to do something with it now and not wait for the next time slice that's three seconds later. So I, I think there are a number of kind of co-location scheduling issues that will, uh, th that will need to be effectively solved uh, to, to make the cloud model uh, usable in, in, a, in, a, in a way that delivers differentiated performance. So cloud will enable access to many people. Your view is it's gonna be a hybrid world. So cloud will have to provide access to both a classical computer very close to the quantum computer to be able to do this, let's call it hybrid processing. Is that yes. fair? Yeah, that's very good. Um, Steve, you've been good at explaining to all of us uh, what is a quantum computer, what are things today, what do we expect to see in the future? Um, for the rest of us who are not working regularly with quantum computers, anything you want to share, anything we should go learn about it to start preparing for this change? Um, so, I mean, if, 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 if you're curious, then absolutely, there are, there are cool things to learn. Uh, so I, I would absolutely encourage that. Um, if you feel like you don't have time or inclination, uh, to my way of thinking, that's completely reasonable. Um, and what I would say is, you know, it, it, when you're, uh, when your quantum computing vendor comes and tries to sell you a quantum computer, um, so if, if you're a subject matter expert, you know, an engineer, a biologist, a chemist, a statistician, whatever, a, a machine learning person, um, I, I think you should be asking, well, what subject matter interfaces are available that take advantage of the quantum computer? And um, one of my D-Wave colleagues uh, built an interface that, that is exactly this. Um, so many of you will have heard of uh, NetworkX, which is a graph analysis package from Los Alamos. Uh, graph in the sense of a set of vertices and edges, not in the sense of a plot. And 
So it, you know, you, you have a high level um, interface. You can say here, define a graph and then go calculate the maximum independent set or the shortest path or a variety of other graph analysis functions. And uh, what my D-Wave colleague did was take some of the very compute intense uh, graph analytic kernels from NetworkX and re-implement them so they execute uh, taking advantage of the quantum processor. So I, as a, as a subject matter expert who knows about graphs, I, I can, and, and I have a NetworkX program, I can import a different module, uh, D-Wave NetworkX, and other than that, and, and there are a, a few minor differences in, in the API, but they're minor. Um, and I can solve the same functions, so maximum independent set as an example, uh, on, and, it, and it uses the, the D-Wave processor instead of a classical processor. Well, to me, this is, this is a great thing. Uh, uh, you know, we've enabled people to use a quantum processor from interfaces that they already know, they're already comfortable with, already familiar with. Um, we, we see another possibility for, uh, th there are uh, algebraic modeling languages like Ample or PyMO or MiniZinc. Um, and for them and for the, the and, and they're very general purpose and not all of their problems uh, map well to a quantum computer, but for the problem types that do map well to a problem, to, to, a, to a quantum computer, it should be possible to pose the problems in those languages and have them converted to run on a quantum computer. And to me, that's, it, quantum computer is a great thing. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm delighted. I, I, I've been working in it for four plus years. Uh, but to, to say that everybody who's gonna use one has to learn all about quantum computing is to me a silly idea. And we should say, we're gonna meet users where they are and we're gonna deliver them differentiated performance where they are. And so that means we have to look at the interfaces they're using and how figure out how we're gonna deliver performance via those interfaces. So to me, that's, uh, that, that is a good question to ask your um, erstwhile uh, quantum computing vendor. That sounds very good. Um, Steve, this has been very interesting for us. Uh, understanding quantum computers, understanding the future, the problems, uh, the realities. I think you've, there's been a lot of hype about quantum computing, like it's replacing everything. Um, understanding what it is today, what we expect to see in the next few years, it, I think it's helpful for all of us. Uh, before we close, anything you'd like to add? Um, no. I, well, maybe I just mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the if we look at when do the first real world uses of these come, come into reality. I mean, when will it be the case that uh, there'll be large organizations that use a quantum computer all day, every day, because it's the best way to get their jobs done. I think probably at a minimum, we're three to five years away from that. Um, and the, I'd say the, the quantum annealing systems probably have a little bit of an advantage there. Uh, the gate model systems could conceivably um, get into that range if if we're able to figure out how to use them without error correction, but it's probably more likely that we'll need error correction for the gate model systems, which puts it out to, I'd say, probably more than 10 years. So this is not a, um, a technology that is 
uh, going to be for the masses anytime soon. But uh, I, I, the, I think it will be, it will be before long. And um, I, th I think the, the, the benefits for the first groups, the first application types that can exploit them will be really large. So I think there'll be uh, once, once they're proven for an application type, I think you'll see people migrate very quickly. Um, you know, others who use that type of application uh, will migrate very quickly. Very good, Steve. Well, uh, to close, I would like to thank our guest, Steve Reinhardt, for sharing his experience in both HPC and in quantum computing to help us separate uh, reality from hype and to help us understand how to navigate the future of this new technology. Till next time, I am Gabriel Bronner, and this was the Big Compute Podcast. Bye.